Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Today's guest on Sporting Misadventures is Lloyd Griffith, stand-up comic, presenter, classically trained singer, impersonator. He's a documentary maker. He's a very talented man. Good um, to see you. Oh, I love your backdrop of bottles. Oh, nice. yeah. yeah. It's, um, yeah. I mean, I just got given like, a load of champagne, but I don't drink it. So it's just there for show. I'm sure you've, you know, you have friends that will be taking it off your hands. Well, do you know, I got given a load of it just before lockdown. And obviously you weren't allowed anyone in. So I was just on my own with like 300 bottles of wine. <laughs> <laughs> it's quite dangerous. Put on a lot of weight and got uh, got drinking. I, I thought you were in a hotel room somewhere on tour, but you're you're at home. Yeah, so we were we actually had a night off yesterday, and then um, we're back on the road today. So how's it all uh, going? Yeah, no, it's all going well, thanks. It's just uh, yeah, it's just the, it's the biggest tour I've done. So we're going into some rooms that I've never played before. And like bigger rooms that I've ever done on my own, so it's um, yeah, it's good. I can't complain. Um, but it is quite knackering. We're doing like forty-four dates over two months, so it's essentially five wow. nights a week. So, and how far into it are you now? We literally hit um, halfway on Sunday. So we did Cheltenham oh, wow. Everyman Theatre on Sunday, and then we're we're see it we're halfway. So yeah, I'm kind of um, the light is at the end of the tunnel. You've broken What's the, the theme back of it. Because it's, it's one ton of fun. Is that the name? Yeah, it's called one ton of fun. It's basically about well, there wasn't really a theme at the start when I was writing it, and then they kind of did did kind of one came to fruition. Essentially, it was about a review that I got as a kid. I got a review from a teacher that said Lloyd Griffith had the audience in the palm of his hand. I I expect there to be a musical written about his life one day, and I kind of just assumed that a someone would just write a musical. I was like, oh great, well I don't need to do anything because. <laughs> It's all going to be taken <laughs> care of. And it's like, yeah, no, that's not exactly how it works, mate. <laughs> I mean, um, and then, yeah, just talk. It gets a little bit, not deep, but I kind of I have a little bit of like five minutes at the end where, you know, I talk about things that I thought would have just happened and haven't happened. And you kind of go, you know, that's just, you've just got to concentrate on the moment and stuff. So it gets a little bit deep, but crucially, it's very funny. But you're, you're a very talented man, aren't you? Because it's, you know, I knew you were a comedian and a presenter and seen you on on TV and uh, doing various things. And then I was watching a clip of your stand-up and that is when, and I knew you were a singer. Yeah. But when you belted out that operatic yeah. song, it was unbelievable. I, I genuinely, jaw hit the floor. It was incredible. It's, it's it's a weird one because I've always had that and I've always done it. And um, it's <clears throat> just something that I'll always do. And even now when I do stand-up, people come and see me do stand-up and they're like, I didn't realise you could sing. And, you know, I do try and sing as often as I can do. Um, even the other day, I just put like a, a little clip of me in a little chapel in Exeter, which has got an, an unbelievable acoustic. And I just was like, oh, I'll just stick that on Instagram. And then I've still got like people going, I didn't know you could sing. It's like, yeah, that's literally the only thing I'm good at. 
So um, it <laughs> what is a thing odd. to have in your back pocket, though. I mean, it's, yeah, it's, it's a skill, it's, isn't it? It does get you out of a few sticky situations. Do you know what I mean? Where you just go, if it's it, I don't, like we've been in awful meet and greets before, where like a couple of lads have just gone, just sing with you, just get us out of this. <laughs> go, yep, okay, cool. And then you just end up singing, and then. <laughs> You can all just dissipate. So it's very odd. You've sung but, at sporting venues too, haven't you? I saw the one of you at Brentford, I think it was. Brentford Arsenal. Yeah, yeah Brent, Brentford Arsenal. Yeah, on, um, it was on uh, Super Sunday. It was actually the, the week after the Queen had passed away. And you don't sing a national anthem at a football match unless it's the cup final, League Cup final or FA Cup final. The only time you sing a national anthem at a football match, a domestic football match, is if there's a passing in the monarch. So the last time it was done was 1952. So a pretty big momentous occasion. And there was actually, um, there was quite a few clips going around on various different Twitter accounts that I follow, Grimsby Town related, who I support. And the last time that happened, Bill Shankly was the Grimsby Town manager. <laughs> which wow. is, wow. yeah, I know. So, you know, it's a moment steeped in history. And so Grimsby Town said, you know, obviously we know you, you sing. Will you... Um, will you come and sing the national anthem for the first time as God Save the King at Blundell Park? And I went and did it. And I have to say, it, you know, um, I have, Grimsby Town's a great community football club and there's a lot of love there. I also do have a few, should we say, detractors that people are like, oh yeah, you only used a football club to get, get your forwarding career. And I was like, at no point have I been in an audition and they've gone, do you know what? The accent's absolutely brilliant. The way that you've just <laughs> brought this kind of grief with you is amazing. Because I just asked, do you support Grimsby Town? Like, yeah, I do actually. <laughs> Fine, you've got the job. Like it has never... Um, but so there's a few people that were like, do you know what, mate? Take it all back. Great voice. And it was just quite a nice moving moment. Um, and then, yeah, Brentford... Um, said look will you come and do the same thing at Brentford Arsenal so I went and did that and that was that was fun there was quite a funny story about that though we practiced it and I kept getting the words wrong I kept singing you know the old words um because it's like someone just going oh will you sing um we're just going to change the words to happy birthday and you're like what mate <laughs> what I've been used to these words for 40 odd years going, yeah but they've got to change now and you're like oh what so uh, I got the words wrong a few times, and the what the, like the Sky Sports showrunner just came over to me. and was like, "Hello, mate, just so you know, it's God Save the King." Yeah, I'm like, "Yeah, I know it's God Save the King." I was like, "I'm trying to get it right." It's so ingrained, though, isn't it? It's, of course, it's, it is. Yeah, of course, it is. And it's 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 a fascinating one. I do a lot of you know, I've done a lot of work on the national anthem, which I'll talk to you about in a second. But like, I'm I've sung it like hundreds, thousands, like genuinely thousands of times. You know what I mean? In various different choirs since the age of like seven. So. When you're then having to sing with different words, you know, it, I was, that was the only thing I was nervous about. And the show, the showrunner comes over and goes, I oh, just, just God save the king. I'm, mate, with what's going on in my, in my head, that is the worst, that is the least of your problems, okay? <laughs> he was like, that camera down there, that camera down there, that camera down there will be like, we're looking at you. And there's a camera straight down, the, straight down the halfway line. And then actually what happened was, it was quite a nice moment, but uh, the Arsenal and Brentford um, backroom staff and substitutes came together and blocked that camera so actually you couldn't really see it was me there was i think it was panic in the gallery where they were like uh, we haven't got a clip we haven't got eyes on the the singer so i think <laughs> like a bird's eye view of like of me singing so but it, again that wasn't about me that was about obviously the moment and stuff so that so was quite nice. Been, would you not have been nervous singing it if it wasn't the king queen difference the rest of actually that performance oh yeah no fine yeah well, yeah, it's just changing the words because also there's the pronouns in there as well, yeah, which I know obviously you know, is a big thing at the moment. But, <laughs> yeah, it was, it was, 
you know, just going, oh yeah, him victorious. Um, you know, so it's just like small little things. And it's actually the first, it wasn't the first time I've ever sung at a football match though. When I was like 16 years old, Grimsby Town, again, got in touch with the choir that I was singing at, um, which is like a church choir in Grimsby called St. James, Grimsby Parish Church. And then uh, they were like, look, we'd love for the choir to come and just like sing some songs before Grimsby Town versus Sheffield Wednesday on Easter Monday to rouse the spirits. <laughs> I was like, let me tell you what doesn't rouse the spirit <laughs> of 7,000 people in a sold out Easter Monday like stadium. It's 24 choristers dressed in cassocks <laughs> that rouses homophobia misogyny it doesn't rouse like a good family kind of easter spirit and they were like wow you don't have to wear your cassocks and i was like still i was a bit like it, it would just be oh i'm just not sure and i had a season ticket at the time well i didn't have a season ticket but i had the same tickets we i went every week with my two mates brendan and timmy and they were like Look, lloyd mate you've always wanted to be a footballer you're too fat to be a footballer but you know you're just the right size to be a singer. So how about you just go and do it in your own clothes with the other lads and just fulfil your dream of performing on the pitch? And I was like, fine, I'm not happy about it. Anyway, we went and we sang three chants in four part choral harmony, which is as mental as it sounds. You know what I mean? Like twenty <laughs> choruses again. We only sing when we're fishing in four part choral harmony on repeat to, for like four minutes. Like, the whole stadium's been like, what is going on? <laughs> And this is 2001, 2002. So, you know, like the idea of cheerleaders would have been acceptable back then. But then, you know, they're like, what is this? Do you know what I mean? Like a <laughs> and then then I was like, oh, I can hear the pontoons singing. And they, and they started singing. I was like, oh, I think they're joining in. Great. We've done our job. This is amazing. And then I realized they weren't singing the same tune all the same words. And I was like, what are they singing? I could have, who's the fat prick in the blue? Who's the fat prick? Who's the fat prick? We all looked around. I was like, oh, I'm wearing oh, blue. No. I'm wearing blue. And it was just, I was like, I mean, mate, James, who was sat next, stood next to me, was like, you just got to cheer them. I was like, what? Went, You've just got to cheer them. That's the only way they'll stop. So I had to go, way the whole stadium were like way it was the greatest and worst day of my life. But to add insult to injury, uh, I went to the back of the pontoon where my two mates were stood and they were like, oh God, mate, sorry about that. I was like, no, don't worry. You're just trying to encourage me to do me two loves, football and singing. It's backfired. Let's never mention it ever again. <laughs> like, they are like, oh no, sorry. No, we're sorry about the chant because we started it as a bit of a joke and it just got out of hand. <laughs> I was like, what? Did I start trying to put water on a chip pan fire, mate? Just made it worse. I was like, oh my God. So um, uh, with friends like that, who needs enemies, eh? Exactly, yeah. Needless to say, we don't go to the games together anymore. <laughs> so where did the love affair with Grimsby start? Was that as a, as a kid? Yeah, yeah. So I, I was, was uh, grew up in Grimsby and uh, it was just my mum growing up. And so she never really went to football, um, but she used to work. She used to work a backside off to provide for me and my sister. And she used to work Sundays, uh, Saturdays and Sundays. She used to work at Wimpy. The, you know that the old you know that the run i say rival to mcdonald's i mean it was on the same street but it never I really loved it. I it loved was great in it waitress yeah. service and um cutlery mm, proper restaurant proper restaurant and so my mum used to work saturdays and my cousin was going out with a guy who was a season to get hold of at manchester united so for two seasons it was actually cheaper for me to get a nine pound ticket to old trafford and then just go to manchester every other saturday with them than it was for my mum to get a babysitter and pay probably double or triple that. So uh, that's I kind of went to a few Man United games and then a few friends were going to Grimsby Town games and my mum took me to a Grimsby Town game and 
yeah, then this love affair with Grimsby started. But actually, it's got a lot stronger as I've got older. So as you like, left for university, I think it's something that definitely brings you back to the place where you're from and you have a bit more of a an affinity for it because you've got that connection. So you know you don't live there anymore. But I remember, again, um, what I used to check on CFAX, like the scores, it was like the days before the internet. You used to have to check on CFAX when I was down at university in Exeter as to what the scores were. So... Um, yeah, it's kind of it's grown from then, and then it's just exponentially just get gets worse and worse every year. This love for this team in the doldrums of League Two is it a torturous experience? A lot of football yeah. talk of that. Yeah, yeah, hundred percent. Yeah, like I mean, and it's 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 quite sad because there's nothing you can do. Like we were we were owned by some quite dubious owners, and uh, well, owner really, and it's just quite sad seeing this team that you love, you know what I mean, and seeing the the people that work for the club just not being able to do anything, and the fans going week in, week out, and it's just being not looked after, and I know that a lot of football fans have the same kind of uh, memories, you know what I mean, of seeing their teams being taken advantage of and stuff, so we're in really good hands now, um, but we have been to the, you know, we used to be in the the first division what is now the championship for a long time and that's kind of where if you think about Grimsby Town that's kind of like where I think they have always belonged really and then there was like moments where we're in the conference and playing you know the likes of Braintree and uh, you know Boreham Wood and, and Ebb's Fleet so it was quite sad but I, it was good though because it meant I get to go to stadiums that I'd never been to before and I don't even think you can call them stadiums in some situations do you know what I mean like pitches You say you're a big a big fan of Grimsby, but you actually bet against them, didn't you? Because I, I saw your documentary on gambling. And you, oh, yeah. You bet against your home team. I did, yeah. That was... Um, <laughs> How was that? Not great. Not great. <laughs> because I can't remember what the outcome was, but I'm almost certain I won, didn't I? Um, but yeah, I always used to have a little punt on, uh, on Grimsby Town to win 4-0. That was my thing. And I did this documentary a few years back with, uh, with BBC called uh, Can You Beat the Bookies? Essentially, it was like a bit of a, not an expose, but just an insight into how the bookmakers operate and how they kind of take advantage of the everyday punter. And it was the reason why I was asked to do it is because um, before I became um, like well-known for comedy and, and acting and other stuff, I actually was in a, in a Labrooks advert. And um, it came at a moment where the comedy, I just started doing it full time and I got this given this quite a large pot of money by Labrooks to be in this advert. But then I got a lot of stick from quite a few people being like, I can't believe you're advertising betting. And I just didn't understand as to why they were getting so angry. And I spoke to a, a number of people, including a comedian friend of mine, uh, John Robbins, who a lot of people know. And he, you know, admitted that, you know, he had a big gambling problem. It was down to like these adverts not necessarily down to the adverts, but the ad- adverts fuel this kind of vision and this fantasy that, you know, the happy-go-lucky better is the winner when in fact they're not. Do you know what I mean? They're, what you don't see is the the people remortgaging their houses or spending their kids' savings or, you know, literally looking for money down the sofa just to try and chase their bets. So maybe it did maybe make me realise, you know, that I know I I just never experienced that. None of my family kind of properly bet. I'd never experienced any families or friends whose fam, you know, parents were gambling addicts. I'm I, apart from food, I've not got an addictive personality. So I'd always just put on me four pound Grimsby to win bet. If I win, I win, which was very rare. If I, I think actually never. 
and if I, if I lost, I lost. But I was never chasing those 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 losses, and it was a real eye, eye opener for me. And I have to say, it was like well, probably the best received thing I've ever done, where people were like, "Thank you for doing this," because I've got a problem, or my dad's got a problem, or my brother's got a problem, or you know, like I got this message from a, a young lad, and he's like, "Look, my." my brother took his life and I didn't realize why he took his life. And it's because he had such a deep gambling addiction that he just couldn't admit to anyone. And, you know, sadly ended up taking his life. And he was like it, me speaking to these people and realizing that actually the bookies are so against you. And if you have the slightest edge, you know, obviously I'm sure you guys know, but an edge is an upper hand in a sports field and the, the, the you know, Chrissy, the, the, the one that you saw that we'd have done was the, uh, was the court siding, tennis mm -hmm. court siding, where there's a guy with a, a, the smallest earpiece he can find having grown his hair long, going to a tennis tournament in like the weirdest part of Florida um, and looking for the oldest umpire who wouldn't be able to use the iPad the quickest in order to find that edge, you know, and he spent thousands of pounds without, you know, obviously investing his time and money, but that's the kind of edge you're looking for in order just to remotely get one over the bookies. And then within what, two hours of me winning three and a half thousand pounds, they pulled the plug on my account. And, you know, so that's, that. you, you can never beat the bookies. Essentially. I, I wondered on, on that, that when I was watching it, because it was a really compelling watch and it was really interesting when you were chatting to that other comedian as well about his gambling addiction. Yeah. Much got. You, you got quite hooked, I think, on the gambling with that. I wondered if that carried on afterwards or were you okay to detach yourself after that? Because you got quite into the, the yeah. team. Yeah, I did actually. Do you know what? I actually um, fell out with my sister. <laughs> went out for Mother's Day lunch and uh, I was like, oh, I'm doing this gambling documentary at the moment. Um, and I was like, oh, yeah, it's, that sounds great. And what is it? I was talking to my mum and my sister about it. I remember where we were, Cafe Valerie's in Cleethorpes, just on the seafront. Lovely place, sadly now closed down. But I said, oh, look, I'm going to have to have a, keep an eye on just two races that I put a bit of money on. And my sister was like, yeah, fine, all right, cool. And then I was doing it and I'd lost. And then I got a text message from this uh, this tipster who's like, yeah, that didn't come through, but I guarantee you this next one will do. And my reaction to my sister and my mum was like, I just ignored them. I just completely ignored them, even though this was a documentary. And my sister was like, you're going to put that down? I was like, mate, it's for work, okay? <laughs> and it wasn't for work. I was just, you know, that loss, I should have documented that loss and just left it and carried on. But it wasn't for work. That bit, that was there, me mentally, just feeling a little bit of shame of, of, of losing that bet. So then I was like trying to, you know, kind of find the next win. And I just remember speaking to my sister being like, oh my God, like this is a different me that I usually see. And so actually what I decided to do once we'd done the documentary, I decided to just come off all the apps. Well, to be fair, I'd say what, I had 12 apps, 10 of them had kicked me off anyway. So I still have them on my phone, but only one works. Um, so I wasn't actually able to bet at all anyway, because they kind of kicked me off. But I, I just decided to take a, a few weeks because, you know, you're right, Matt. It, it, you could see that it was kind of seeping in a little bit. And it's just that mentality of just thinking, right, how am I going to beat them? And um, I was really fortunate in that we had a production team behind us who had, a, you know, a plethora of people that were in the business. And your everyday person who I represented on this Labrooks advert doesn't have that. So, um, yeah, it is, it's a very, very slippery slope. It's kind of scary as well to see how it's all stacked up in their favour, of course, in, in terms of the, the casinos and the, the, the gambling companies. Yeah. But also, 
to try and get you hooked. The whole aim is to get you addicted. They want you to be addicted. So you have to come back and you have to keep spending more and more money. And it's, you know, of all the addictions, it's probably the most terrifying because, you know, it, it's exponential. It spirals and you're winning, to, you're trying to win to pay back the money you've already lost. You lose yeah. even more, you get even deeper in. And, you know, for a lot of people, how do you get out of that? How do you see the way out of that, that, that situation? And, and the key thing with that as well, Chris, is the fact that it's, it's invisible. You know, with other addictions, you can kind of tell with most addictions, a drug addiction, drink addiction, smoking addiction, you can kind of, there, there are telltale signs that, you know, alcohol in the breath or, you know, however drug taking manifests itself in that person. But with gambling, you know, literally all bets are off. You don't know how they're doing it, you know, whether it is, a, a, you know, roulette on their phone or whether they're going into the local bookies and playing the cash apps there playing the cash machines there or whether you know they're, they're they're doing ridiculous accumulators just to change it or mad horse racing virtual horse racing that you go well obviously don't bet on virtual horse racing it isn't real <laughs> there is it's, it's it's completely invisible and people will just find themselves going deeper and deeper into these holes and not you know just you won't realize a friend a friend of a friend her husband was addicted to gambling and hadn't told her and they were fifteen thousand pounds in debt and it wasn't until she went to her bank and they were, her bank were like we need to freeze your card because you you haven't paid off your credit card she's like i don't have a credit card she's like you do have a credit card and it's ten thousand pounds in debt she went i don't and she's like right we need to call the police because you've been fraudulently you know using oh a credit card and it turns out it was her husband and he's you know with it's situations like that that and that wasn't even the documentary. That's just real life. I mean, it wasn't that we didn't even, you know, touch on that. So you're right. It's just like a really um well, it's just it's just quite demonic. It's quite a demonic world that is um fantasized and made fantastical and made to look kind of like happy go lucky when yeah. in fact the the dark side of it is 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 really, really dark. Chris, you you've got a different thing. You sort of we're in a betting world in a sense, in a sporting scene with one part of the cycle, wasn't it? Yeah. In Japan, um, after the second world war, they set up this, this sport called Kieran racing, bike racing yeah. on, on the velodrome. And it was a way to try and get the economy back on its feet. And it was one of, I think there was only four sports back then that you could legally gamble on in Japan. Mm. And it's now, I think it's a $20 billion a year industry. Now it's massive over there. The, the kind of the, the gambling demographic they're all tend to be older guys who are you know the, the age is kind of getting older and older they're trying to attract younger people into the gambling mm. um, but it's interesting you know you go across there as a foreign rider you get invited across for a two-month stay and you stay in the hills in this kind of you know it's like being in the karate kid you're up in the, the mountains away from everything else you get you go to the the lecture theaters every morning you go for like a three-hour lecture over the rules they drum the same rules into you over and over and over again because there's so much money being bet, or there could be so much money being bet on a single wow. one, they don't want you to cock it up. So you have to understand the rules. You have to understand the etiquette. Um, you know, you, you get you arrive at the velodrome and you all stay together in these dormitories. You have to hand over your phone, your laptop, any form of communication. You're you have to declare what color of shoes and gloves you're going to wear. So there's no basically trying to eliminate all the different ways to communicate with the fans or any anyone betting on the outside. Wow, and and you're basically treated like a horse or a you know a, a dog, or whatever. You kind of get paraded on a parade lap, so they can look at you and think hey, he's looking. <laughs> a, he's looking a bit tired. He's looking a bit podgy. No, I'm not gonna not gonna bet on him today. 
and and because you so I went out there in 2005 and I was it was the year after I won my first Olympic gold medal in a different event to the Kieran so it was you know they knew you had pedigree but you weren't really a specialist in this event and the first race I did I basically completely cocked it up came second last out of the nine riders and as Olympic champion I think a lot of the locals had put a decent amount of money on me and the abuse I got so you're, you're you know you used to you lose a race normally and you kind of, you feel bad for yourself and you've got your family with you sort of, you know, never mind. Out in Japan, you're riding around and they don't know many words, but most of them are swear words in English. And basically, really? oh, you, you know, and yeah, you kind of get these guys chucking their, their betting slips at you and shouting abuse at you. You think, well, yeah. I've got to, got to get my head around this, but, but it was an amazing experience. And I really, it was a, you, you kind of go out there for the prize money. That's the, the, the lure, but yeah. You know, at the end of it, I would have gone for nothing. It was such an incredible insight into a completely different part of the sport. Are you are you aware though when when obviously when you're competing in various different events that betting was taking place? Was it ever something that was on your mind? Never never considered anything in a gambling sense with cycling until the Olympic Games, and then all of a sudden you get people asking you, "Oh, you know, what are your tips for?" In fact, I had a friend who who put um, a trifecta on on me winning triple Olympic gold in Beijing in 2008, or it was my, my wife's friend, she is my friend as well, but mainly my wife's friend, um, she met her, I, I met her through my wife, and um, yeah, I didn't. she didn't tell me that, she didn't want to put any extra pressure, but I think she won a few thousand pounds, because at that time, you know, to win all three, it was like, well, that's never going to happen, yeah. and you know, it was the first time in 100 years that anyone had won three gold medals at Olympic Games, so it was a really unlikely thing to happen, but you know, I guess... <laughs> I yeah. felt nervous in the start line in that final race for the third medal, but she must have been pretty terrified too. Um, but, <laughs> when but did yeah. she tell you? When did she tell you? Um, I, it was a few months later, actually. What, was what, it? My wife told me. She's like, oh, you know that Louise, uh, she put a, put a bet on and uh, yeah. She's, That's uh, great. She came up. But but yeah, you don't, you don't, it's not something you even think about really. Um, it's not a sport you would necessarily no. associate with gambling, but as you showed in your documentary, you can, you can bet on anything. You can bet on a single point. You can bet on. Oh Yeah. No, and that's that's what happened. that's what we were doing in tennis was betting on actual single points because mm. that's you know I, I think in, in golf you can bet on uh, holes in baseball you can also bet you know um, on on the smaller points and stuff. What was a, a, the not to dwell on it too much, but what, what was a big eye opener for me was we went on a a, a, bet, a betting platform, quite a common one. I can't remember exactly which one it was at the time, and then we just went on to what was playing at at, at that moment, and we were able to bet on a sport without knowing what sport it was. So yeah. it was two teams in Taiwan that were playing and we were able to bet on them, but it gave you no information as to what the sport was. So then we had to like Google it. And even then it weren't <laughs> like you weren't given a, a huge amount of information. It turns out it was like a, a third division basketball team in Taiwan. And you're going, wow. I mean, and did you win? Obviously not, no. <laughs> Obviously not, no. But it was, um, yeah, it was, it was a real interesting eye opener. And you know, I've got a lot of friends who 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 play football, who you know, even just do like the fantasy Premier League stuff. And like they they they're footballers themselves. They play in the Premier League, and they're like, that's the only thing they can do is because they can't bet on yeah. they can't bet on any football matches. It's highly illegal. I mean, you've seen quite a few things uh, come yeah. out recently and stuff. But you you know, you you the only thing they can do is really 
go on Fantasy Premier League and pick their own team, whether they pick themselves or not. And then even then, they've got a little bit of inside information as to who might be playing, if anyone's carrying a knock. But again, like you're not, it's not for money. So um, yeah, I just I, I find it quite interesting because I think with football as well, the amount of abuse that footballers get, you know, if someone misses a last minute penalty and it results in someone not winning thirty thousand pounds on an accumulator, you know, the abuse that someone gets, and that guy's like, mate, do you not do you not think I was already under a lot of pressure anyway? I wanted to score that penalty, I didn't, and it's not my fault that you haven't won thirty thousand pounds. Like you know, so it's it's I think it's murky and. Okay, not to keep going on about it, but what was really interesting is that there was a company that had done some research, and I'm not sure if this actually made the, the documentary, but when you watch a football match, specifically football, the 20 minutes before the football match, the adverts going into the football match, the football match itself, the punditry, the only time where you, you're not um, – shown betting was when is when they're in the studio as long as you can't see the hoardings because there's betting in all the adverts there's betting around all the hoardings there's betting on their on their t-shirts you know it's just everywhere and so the only time you don't get to see gambling adverts or any any kind of point of sale for gambling is when they're doing the analysis pre and post. So it's just that that needs to change as well because it's it's just been seeped into children, like from a young age as well. And I think we're gonna if we if if nothing is acted on now, we're gonna see a huge influx in a real betting problem like in the next five to twenty years. But even even ways that they try and find to subliminally get um, yeah. the gambling advertising in there. So I in two thousand and seven I think it was 2007, 2006, maybe. Um, I got approached by Paddy Power yeah. before the Olympics in Beijing, and they said, "You know, would you consider changing your name to Paddy Power, so that whenever you're on the track, the commentator would be saying it's Paddy Power in the front, Paddy Power leads, Paddy Power gets the goal." And I, I remember just thinking, "Well, it's ridiculous. Of course not. Of course not. I'm not going to change." And then you start thinking, "Well." You know, I was living off a, a, a sports subsistence grant at that time. You know, it paid paid the rent, it paid for your food and everything else. But really, you were, you know, I, I thought, well, this could be a life-changing sum of money here. You never, you know, everybody's got their price. And you kind of think, well, the, the, the thought was absolutely not, no way. And I thought, well, maybe just see what they're offering. And it was, it was absolutely pitiful. It was ridiculous. It was like, I was really? like, it was almost insulting. It was like, do you really think, you know, and then, do you know what? I So you sort of laughed it off and said, yeah, thanks very much. No, that's all right. And then there was a, I think it was a Tongan rugby player changed his name to Paddy Power before the Rugby World Cup, which would have been in 2007 as well. Um, and then the whole team changed, or, or they dyed their hair green, because I was I was going back through searching and trying to find it recently, and they all dyed their hair green. And then the International Rugby Union or the Rugby Board said, this is constituting advertising, so you're not yeah. allowed to have your hair green. So they had this, this big thing back and forth. And in the end, I think, you know, they didn't let him change his name or... But there was so much in the press about it at the time that they got their free advertising. Yeah. It's, you know, you kind of realise it's subliminal. Whatever the reason, it, whatever the the way they do it, they try and get themselves front and centre. So just before the match, you think, oh, I'll just put a quick bet on. It's you know, it's, it, as you say, it's so that you're in the in the front of their brain, in front of your brain, and go, well, oh yeah, all right, fair enough. It's they just want to be um, uh, friendly and uh, kind of just like your your mate, as opposed to an evil. So yeah, it's. 
Just, I can't believe that they're asking you to change your name to Paddy <laughs> Power. Like start calling you Paddy, though, Chris. Paddy, nice. Patrick Power. Patrick my mum would have killed Power. me for that if I. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> she doesn't like when I got a haircut, let alone change my name. That would be a big. <laughs> Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Lloyd, I don't want to make assumptions here, but would it be fair to say on this um call that only one of us has sporting prowess here did you did you have any sporting prowess you said you sang because of a failure of being able to become a footballer was that was that yeah i mean as a kid or i always when i was a kid i kind of obviously had had aspirations to be a footballer specifically a goalkeeper but i mean i was just the size of a space hopper um and so obviously great for bouncing around a goal but you know, realistically, you know, what wasn't ever going to go anywhere. I'd like trials as we all have had trials, but nowhere near good enough. I remember like genuinely, and I talked about this in a bit of stand up a few years back. I remember going to like, quite an important game, like my trials, and my, my mum and auntie dropped me off. And uh, my mum was like, look, just go out there and just do your best. For the best is the best you can do. If you have a good one, you have a good one. If you don't, you, you don't. You know what I mean? You've got your singing, you've got your education. You know, this isn't the be and end all. And, Whatever happens tonight, I'm just going to cook a nice little dinner. I think I'm going to do a chicken lasagna um, and we'll pick you up like later on. I was like, okay, great. And all I could think about that whole game was, how is she going to do a chicken lasagna? <laughs> like, is she slicing it? Is she dicing it? I've heard of turkey mince, but I've not heard of chicken mince. And that was the only thing I was thinking about during this like, really important oh, football match. Oh, just really thinking, going, well, yeah, like cheese and chicken would go well together, but what's the sauce? <laughs> Is it bechamel? Is it tomato? I've got no idea. And I just had a had a stinker. I mean, I don't actually think that the th- the fact that I was thinking about lasagna was the reason I had a stinker. I think I had, the reason I had a stinker is because I was five foot five and sixteen stone, and everyone else was, you know, a whippet. And then I got home. I was like, like mum was like, I was like, I don't want to talk about it. I was so excited about this lasagna, and she put it on the table. <laughs> uh, I I tucked into it. It was just a normal beef lasagna. I was like, what? What is this? She was like, oh, yeah, no, I, oh, yeah, just thought it'd be a bit weird, actually. So I've just gone for beef. I was like, ah, mum, you're the reason I'm not a professional <laughs> footballer. Where, where are you playing at? So, um, yeah, and then there was another time, again, I was playing, it was the school that I uh, played for, St. James School, and we played at a school called Brig, just up the road in Lincolnshire. And I'd, ate, I'd eaten, we used to play on Wednesday afternoons, I'd eaten quite a lot of food at lunchtime, as I always did. I remember like diving for a ball once, getting kind of winded, but then just going, oh, I think I'm going to throw up and then just throw up in the goal. And it was like a chicken oh, no. curry, the chicken again. But yeah, and it was, everyone, all my mates were like, oh, mate, this is ridiculous. Like, <laughs> I was, it, it, I was like the, 
the poster boy for Sunday league football, but like in quite a posh school in Grimsby on a Wednesday afternoon. Do you know what I mean? Like <laughs> you'd expect it on a Sunday league where someone's 13 pints worse for wear on a Sunday morning. But uh, yeah, it, for me, sport, it was just something that I absolutely absorbed as a, as a kid, always have done. And, um, you know, I just w- would have loved to have uh, been a professional sports person purely because of the discipline. And I d- absolutely do not want to say that singing in a choir is the same discipline as sport because it does not. But, you know, having been a professional singer for, for quite a long time, still do it now. I don't practice as much now, but growing up, I'd have to do like two or three hours of look, practice a day, like singing practice, easy. And I'd be singing at least three, three or four hours a day. You know what I mean? Up until the age of, say, 32. So obviously nowhere near like the level of, no, no, sorry, Chris, you can't say well. I mean, bless you, but you, you absolutely no, and And the stand-up comedy as well. The more, the more I speak to stand-up comics, the more I'm amazed and, and just have huge respect for the commitment and the drive and the, you know, aside from the touring, but having to hone your material and, you know, it's, you make it all, the, the, the good guys like yourself make it look so effortless and so easy, but, but it's, it's a skill which you've had to hone and hone and hone and try things that don't work and, go back and analyze it and change this and change that and i guess it becomes more natural the more you do it but still it's it's a it's a real discipline to become a top stand-up comic yeah and the the reason why i do it is because and i said this last week to someone else i don't want to say to someone i used to be a comedian i I couldn't think of anything worse than to say to someone oh i used to be a comedian i tried comedy and it didn't work because and I guess it's probably is a lot more deep rooted um, psychologically, but you know every comedian uh, is there's a reason why they do they do stand up and he's usually a missing figure in their life. You know what I mean, father, mother, or loved one, and that's usually the reason why they're they're doing that. Like it's just I think if you looked at the amount of comedians and look at the backstory going oh right okay yeah your dad walked out okay fine oh right yep your mum died at the age of 12 okay you know it's 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 insane so i do it because i love making people laugh but then you get to a point and rob beckett he said this years ago you know he he, about comedy he says it's a hobby that gets out of hand and i'm sure with sport as well it can be a hobby that gets out of hand you go oh actually you're really good at this and you know i think with sport you can do it and go oh do you know what I don't, you know, it's not for me. I want to step down. You know, I've got friends who, again, footballers who have just got to a certain level gone, ah, do you know what? I, I actually don't want to do this anymore. I think with comedy, it's very hard to say I used to be a comedian mm. because I think you have to say, oh no, you failed because you just weren't funny enough. Like that's Same. why. Yeah, I think, you, you know, you think about co- comedians or actors or, you know, any of that, that type of thing that in theory you could do it as long as you wanted to. Whereas with oh. sport, there's a finite period. So it's, perfectly normal to say well you know i used to be a professional footballer or i played you know a cycle or whatever because you know you're not going to do that when you're 65 exactly. yeah and yet with comedian yeah you're right but i suppose you do see a lot of comedians who would then you still use you know you, with your presenting and your you know you, you have other strings you bow you're singing you can yeah. use your comedy in that and it's like well actually yeah. do you know what i've used the comedy as a springboard onto something yeah. else on another level yeah, and you, you know, you do see other people that you know start off in comedy and go off to do other things. You know, look at Simon Pegg, for example. I mean, started off doing the open mic circuit in London, then 
was just ahead of everyone with 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 making and writing films and now look at him could absolutely still go and deliver a set somewhere you know and be and be brilliant but i think yeah you you automatically you kind of um you're not treading water but i think when you start doing comedy you're going right i've got to do this if i'm doing it i'm doing it and i'm doing it until you know i'm whatever your goal might be you know to 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 put a tour on sale or to buy a house because you you know you've you've from the earnings in comedy or whatever you know I mean to, to win the perrier i don't know what it is but with me it was like i just want to be a stand-up com- comedian and the thing that's stopping me or the thing that's keeping me going is the fact that i don't want to tell someone oh i used to i used to do stand-up and they're going oh right okay because then you're going yeah i'm not funny i'm not funny enough to be you know and that for, for me is mm, like even saying it now makes me feel sick like <laughs> Having to have a conversation <laughs> in the pub, going, I just annoyed you to do stand up, and then just like me, be like, yeah, I, I used to be funny. <laughs> like, that, that's what keeps me going, and I think as I've got older, I've got better. I think you, you know, and you you understand yourself a bit more, and uh, you find your own voice, and you respect yourself a bit more, and then that's kind of like where, where I am at the moment, really. So, yeah, I'll just keep kicking on. I'll, I'll just be doing gigs, but they will be they'll have to have disabled access because you'll be wheeling me onto a stage at the age of 78, 80. I mean, to be fair, I'll probably be in a wheelchair a lot quicker than that. Um, almost, and I keep diagnosing myself with gout at the moment. I can't feel my little finger on, on my left hand, but. Uh, yeah, I just want to be wheeled on, wheeled on. I'll just do, I'll just do jokes about what you know, whatever you know, medication I'm on for the, the ailment that I have. Belt out Nessendorma, and then belt out Nessendorma. I'm like Paul Potts in a wheelchair, um, <laughs> and then yeah, just just yeah, get me back to my sheltered accommodation. What about you? Talked about this. You would have loved. I would have loved to be a sportsman as well. But what what would it be? Would it have been football? Or would it have been you'd like to have excelled at something else? Or? Well, do you know what? my godfather growing up really wanted me to be a cyclist. Like that was that was the big thing. He uh, he passed away at the age of seventy five, and I think like two weeks before he passed away, he was doing like sixteen twenty miles a day, like all around the like the, wow. the roads in Lincolnshire. And so yeah, he really wanted me to be uh, a cyclist. It took me to a, a velodrome. Oh my god, where was the velodrome? I can't remember where it was. And it, honestly, I, I've alluded to the fact that I was a, a, a portly lad as a kid. Me on a velodrome. I mean, the balance. It's just. I mean, so, I know, but once you get to a certain speed, I can't remember where it was. Is it one in Birmingham? What, what, was, was it a it? very steep one? Or was it? Was it? Like yeah, a, yeah. Well, I mean, was it? Yeah, wood, wooden. Or, no, oh, wood, Lester. wooden, and Lester, Lester, yeah, might have been Leicester. Yeah, might have been oh, Leicester. Yeah, he, epic track, Saffron Lane in Leicester. It's it? gone now. I actually, yeah, yeah they, they I was, have national championships there every year. Really, I can't. I my memory of that was really vague because I was like maybe eight or nine years old um and he was always like trying to get me to be a sports person and he was like so i think we tried that and i, I did like cycled a lot as a kid in lincolnshire's very flat so it's perfect for cycling and then um i went skiing um i've never skied on snow but for three years i skied every saturday so i went to sheffield sheffield ski village and skied and um you know so he was always kind of like quite keen on me maybe taking up some sort of sport but i think yeah goalkeeper would be the be the one thing um in football mainly because you know you, you are in the limelight you know what i mean you're dancing around so i mean the spotlight's on you um and i think that's why i liked being in goal is because i i was a performer you know and so you're the only one you know in, in there's four defenders obviously if you, you know four midfielders two attackers and a traditional uh football two lineup you're the only goalkeeper so it's like yeah <laughs> 
it's me guys it's that is that's how pathetic i am that i want to be a goalkeeper because i was like i'm wearing gloves look at me jazz hands like absolutely cringeworthy stuff penalty shootouts though you want to be oh, the keeper don't you you don't want to be course, the guy yeah. taking the penalty because like you've got no one's expecting you to save it but if you save it you're the hero whereas it's the complete opposite as the guy yeah. taking the penalty yeah and again that is it do you know what i mean it's if you just think of some sort of like Broadway, Broadway stage, West End stage, I mean, complete blackout and then just spotlight on the goalkeeper. <laughs> it's like, that's what a penalty shootout is. And I'm like, this is what I live for. I play in quite a few charity football matches um, and in, in, in a few various teams. And they're great because, you know, they raise quite a bit of money for various different charities up and down the country. And it's usually uh, comedians and actors who really wanted to be... Um, footballers but absolutely were nowhere near good enough so now we use our absolutely awful profile to you know play football <laughs> matches on a Sunday up and down the country and it's <laughs> lovely people come and watch you but I'm like please let it go please let it be a draw at 90 minutes please let it be a draw at 90 minutes I just want <laughs> penalties I just want penalties and I'm actually half decent at penalty shootouts like a lot of people, I think, will be probably shouting at their the devices now, being like, whatever, Lloyd. But in a penalty shootout, I absolutely back myself. Um, and that's what I kind of w- live for, because it's, as you say, you're the performer. It's your stage. But you, you start thinking about keepers. I mean, who was was it a Colombian keeper back in the 80s or 90s had a big sort of permed sort of long hair? Uh, Rene Hagita. Was, was he yeah. Colombian? Yeah, yeah. Uh, he was Colombian, yeah. 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 I just remember that as a kid. I'm just seeing if it's on my wall. No, so on my wall, let me just grab this. I've got um, I've got this thing by No Score Draws, which has basically got all goalkeepers from the like nineties. So, cool. you know, the likes of uh, Neville Southall, Schmeichel, Pavel Cernacek, um, Steve Grizovich, Mark Bosnich, Paul Robinson. Um, so like yeah, I am. Um, there's quite, there's quite, they're quite eccentric. Or I mean, that's maybe that's a generalisation, but there's a lot of quite mad goalkeepers, which I quite like that about them. But, again, but I think that boils down to why they want to be a goalkeeper. They love the adrenaline of just diving in front of a shot or and, and just being, it's all on me. Mm. You know, it's all, mm. you are, it's like, it's down to me. And that, love that kind of thrive or die mentality of going, if I save it, you're all going to love me. If, you know, <laughs> but if it goes in, it's absolutely not my fault. <laughs> <laughs> I grew up, Peter Schmeichel was my hero growing up. I just was obsessed with Peter Schmeichel and just, I just loved his attitude, his mentality. He was like the shoutiest goalkeeper ever. And, you know, in front of him, he had Gary Pallister and Steve Bruce, who were two absolute brick walls. Who, like, noses are out of place. And you like, you don't argue with them, but Peter Schmeichel just came in and was just shouting at everyone. And he, he was just, he was a, he was six foot four, but he was a bulky six foot four. And his agility was just unrivaled. He'd like put out a save from nowhere. He's like, well, even Neville Southall, Neville Southall, amazing goalkeeper, had a really like varied career, played at Everton and Wales most famously. He wasn't a small lad. And he, I think, you know, he was the person that probably gave me hope that actually as a barrel-chested man that looks like he should be working at an abattoir, you know, in Patelba, he's <laughs> throwing him. And he, he, he like, some, if, you, if you've ever got 10 minutes go and watch Neville Southall's greatest saves because you just look at the man and you're going he ain't get, he's wow he's got that how's he done that it's just it's unbelievable and also your, awesome. your, yeah. your football avenue took you to Soccer M which was quirk I don't know quite how that came about but 
Was that through doing your clips you did on YouTube? Did that come first or did that follow up? Well, it was actually, I think it was, it was, I'd done, um, I'd done a video with, uh, with FIFA, uh, EA sports and, um, I'd gone out and met Lionel Messi. And so we would do it. We'd, we'd done this video and we were promoting that because it was being shown on Sky Sports. So Soccer M's, oh, will you come on the show as a, as a guest? So I went on the show as a guest. And then the year after I went on the show as a guest to promote my tour. And then, um, yeah, they were making some changes and they said, look, we'd love for you to, to come on and host it. And again, I used to watch that as a kid, not legally because my mum couldn't afford Sky, but me old teacher, Mr. Redding, um, he used to tape it. And then when there was wet break in at school and, let me tell you, there was a lot of wet break in Grimsby in the nineties. <laughs> um, so we just used to watch a lot of soccer AM and, you know, I just remember just being like, there was just this magazine show. I remember like the word, the girly show, um, big breakfast and soccer AM. They were, they were the, they were the, they were, they were the shows. And yeah, when they asked me to come on and host it, I was like, well, this is an absolute dream. Um, so yeah, lovely, amazing two years. And yeah, still, I went actually on as a guest um for the first time a few weeks back since having left as a presenter so it was great and you know i always said to them it's just something that i'm going to do for two or three years and you know because i want to do the acting and it's quite hard to do a stand-up tour when you're you know on tv every week and stuff so and that is my first love like stand-up is you know is is the one thing that i didn't ever want to sacrifice going back to what we chatted about earlier so but yeah that was great and you know get to got to meet david seaman um david seaman took a penalty against me and i saved it and i'm like this is, <laughs> this is the greatest thing in the world and then there was matt letizia took a penalty against me and he'd only ever he only ever missed one penalty in his professional career and that was against mark crossley and um so we had this live penalty on 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 the show where matt letizia was taking a penalty and i guessed correctly and went to my left, his right, and saved it. And then he came up to me afterwards off camera and went, how do you know I was going to go that way? I was like, oh, um, yeah, you did a video for a gambling um, company a few years back where you talked about like where you take your penalties. I just watched that and went, oh, he's going to go to his right. And Matt went, oh, okay. I was like, literally, the, the definition of selling, it, selling out. <laughs> of wow. going. There's like that famous... Um interview with it was Agassi and Becker and how the Agassi was saying the tongue. yeah just yeah. the tongue the telltale which which side he was going to serve to and how you know Agassi would be back home with, with Steffi kind of going I can't I can't work out how he just seems to read my mind and know which way I'm going to go and it's it's killing me and then when he retired he's like yeah that's how I worked out it's incredible so yeah it was, he, he, he'd have to like squint wouldn't he just to see what his tongue was doing <laughs> Yeah, because if you oh, think about it, it's probably like you're going right, tongues out, okay, and then just going right. This is how I'm. It was years after, wasn't it? Years yeah. after he admitted it went hilarious. Use your tongue. <laughs> what? Your tongue. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, what was it like exactly. meeting meeting Messi? That's a pretty cool. Um, my kids would love that. Yeah, uh, again, very wild. And the, the key thing about footballers is that they are footballers. A lot of them, some footballers just want to be footballers some footballers want to be footballers and have the lifestyle whereas Lionel Messi is someone that just wants to be a footballer you know he does adverts for Pepsi and EA but you know he just wants to kick a ball about and look after his family so on the on the day well, in, in advance really we were told just so you know he'll turn up he'll do it he'll go like he doesn't do the, he doesn't just he doesn't do these because he loves them he does them because he's contractually obliged You're like, okay fair enough so he turned up on the day. He can't speak English. I can't speak Spanish. So we were kind of like just chatting through emojis and his agent, really. And um, he um, 
he, he was really nice. And everyone was like, oh, um, like, don't ask for selfies, don't ask for like signed stuff. And this was the whole crew. And it was just me and him in this in this filming thing. So I was like, well, I'm I'm being filmed with him anyway. So, you know, that's fine. And then one of the first things he said was like, um, oh, uh, we've got a friend in common. He was talking to his agent and I was like, oh, he thinks I'm Jack Black. Brilliant. I was like, oh, yeah, do he? He's like, uh, yeah, yeah. He's like, si, 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 Joaquin Mendila, Pipa. I was like, Joaquin Well, I've got your Pipa, Pipa. And basically, this lad called Joaquin Mendila, who is Pablo Zabaleta's best friend. When Pablo Zabaleta got bought by Man City, he said, look, I'm going to be quite lonely. Any chance you can sign my mate? He plays for Barcelona B team. He's really good. They looked at a clip and they're like, no, obviously not. No, like he's he's not good enough to play. You know, look, we'll pay for him to play at Macclesfield. So he, they basically paid for him to play at Macclesfield down the road. My mate Martin Gritton, he played with people at um, at Macclesfield, and as I mentioned earlier, Martin liked football, but he's very cultured. So he'd like go to galleries and take you know go out to nice places with with people, and they got on really well. And then we went out to see people in Barcelona like a week before we were filming with Messi. I forgot that he's Argentinian and probably would have known Messi anyway. He told Lionel, was like, oh yeah, you, you're meeting this guy next week. He's a really nice lad, blah, blah, blah. So then Messi brought it up to me. Wow. And then the whole the whole crew were like, sorry, Lloyd, at what point <laughs> were you going to mention you got a mutual friend with Lionel Messi? I was like, if I'm honest, lads, it was him that brought it up. I was like, I, you know, I didn't even know. So it was, yeah, it, was a, it was a great experience. He was really lovely. And then he was like, do you want anything signed? And I was like, yeah, sure. You got two minutes. He's like, yeah, yeah, fine. So I had to run to like the club shop and buy a, a Barcelona replica shirt for my for my cousin and uh, get that signed. And I was the best cousin in the world when turning up at Christmas Day with Brilliant. a signed Lionel Messi shirt, which I'm I'm sure he stuck on eBay at some point. But <laughs> and do you love all sport? By the way, just. Or are there things that you just can't endure or enjoy? You seem like you like pretty much everything. Do you know what? I there's the, I, I watch most things and I love most things. Um, you know, even indoor bowls. I know it sounds stupid. Grimsby Leisure Centre, growing up, we used, to, the, we used to go into like their aqua disco. But me and a few friends, my mate Pete Drinkle included, sometimes we just like stop up at the long bowls, like the indoor bowls, and just watch that for like 20, 30 minutes. Because you're going, if you watch a good game of bowls, it's unbelievable. Like the way in which, you know, on TikTok, there's a little bowls community and I'm I'm constantly like looking at the, like some of the shots they're doing like, how, how is he? That's absolute <laughs> dark art stuff. This is insane. <laughs> so, I, you know, I will watch most things. Go to Ali Pali for the darts. I play golf. I like to watch golf. Tennis. I'm not, you know, I'm not incredible at it, but I like to watch it. I play squash. I really got into paddle or padel recently. Oh, yeah. That's like a a, a big thing. That I'm kind of like trying to play a bit more of it in London. Um, but yeah, most sports, like again, my godfather used to watch kind of Tour de France, like religiously. I had to go around this and, and, and watch it and love that. F1, a big thing. My godfather was also an ex-rally driver, so we used to watch rally stuff. So yeah, the, I have to say like grew up just being... Like injecting most sport into in, into my veins. Um, golf, golf. I'm a later late um, developer with, with golf. That's only covered the last like four or five years. Well, you're never too late with, with cycling. You know, I could get you down the velodrome again. I know Leicester is gone now, but you could come up to Manchester, <laughs> yeah, or Glasgow, yeah. London. Yeah. Get you in the track. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's so much fun. I love yeah, it. So, were you actually did you actually ride the track when you were eight or nine at Leicester? Yeah. So That's it amazing. was. 
I remember it was, I, so I, I couldn't even remember it was Leicester, but I, he he took me because we used to do these like random little days where we like horse riding once and stuff. I think he was just trying to see. I think he was one of those like Godfather was just trying to see if I just pick something up and then like right all <laughs> all effort into this. When in fact actually it was the singing on a Sunday morning that was probably the thing that would you know that, that kickstarted my career. But I, I remember that the 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 velodrome track at Leicester being quite like old, quite rough and mm-hmm. quite old. Like it wasn't. It wasn't necessarily shiny. It was almost like the no. floor of like my my gym, mm. and I, I remember that vividly. But we just went, we just kind of went, got nowhere near, like probably like halfway, like maximum. But it was just like riding around the bottom of it, and then just you know. And then he had a little go around it on his yeah, he had like a number of road bikes, and I think um, yeah, it was like a a day where you can just come and like ride ride. But up. even even riding on the track to get because the track is the same steepness the whole way up. So if you can ride above the black line at the bottom, you can ride anywhere because it's it's literally. You've just got to be able to ride above a certain speed. So to be able to get onto the track, and that that wasn't an easy track to ride. It was, um, you know, so as I, you say, it was getting quite old and tatty, and the, yeah. the surface wasn't perfect. So you I don't, well. I don't remember it being that. Um, I remember like riding around the bottom and then like getting a little bit up there, but I don't remember it being that steep. I remember like just like falling off like three or four times, and just because it was like. <laughs> I was I was eight years old. I was essentially two oranges. You bounce you know, when you're small, don't together. you? You just kind of you fall off. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Straight on. There was a lot of there was a lot of bouncing, but yeah, I think it was almost like the the, the pressure as well because obviously it was like a obviously it must have been some sort of like come and ride day or whatever. I don't know how Jeff had sorted it, but yeah, it, there was there was people there, and I was being a bit like oh god, but um, yeah, I love you know genuinely. Then after that, I did a lot of cycling, so it was something that I. I did a lot of cycling during lockdown, did a lot of running during lockdown. So, yeah, it's definitely one of them things. When I retire, you know, I'll be, I'll be doing 70 miles a day on my bike. Good man. Come and, come and join me. We'll go for a ride. Yeah, mate. All over that. Yes, please. That'd be cool. Brilliant stuff. Well, I think we've I'm, taken... I'm aware of your time here. Yeah. I'm going to get, get to Wellingborough. Wellingborough. Yeah. Being picked up in 14 minutes to go to Wellingborough. Um, the castle and then go back to Grimsby tonight and then Leeds tomorrow. So it's, it's so you know, it's a, it's a big old slog. Do you, do you have to lift yourself up? Sorry, I know we said we're going to go for each one. Is it quite tough to sort of get sure, going for it? Or, 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 no. Or, no. no, I love it. Okay. No, I love it. I have to just make sure that I'm eating and drinking the right stuff. So I kind of like, um, really intermittent fasting at the moment, um, which has helped me with weight loss, but also just so much fresher so much like like just just uh i just feel on it a lot more so i'm doing that um but yeah no i i i can't tell you how much i love doing stand-up so it's just um you know to be able to turn up to a venue and people have come to see you and tell you jokes and we, we've had one i'd say 60 percent crowd like of a vibe then the rest have been absolutely amazing so um, yeah, I I can't wait. I'll, I'll text you tomorrow. I'll be like, yeah, no, Wellingbrew was the one. Wellingbrew was the one. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> I'm not sure who they came to see, but I'm almost certain it wasn't me. Okay. Well, it's well, that's the best of luck. And yeah, yeah, good luck for the rest of the tour. Hey, thanks, thanks. for having me on. Nice one. Bye. All right, cheers. Thanks, Lloyd. Bye. Take care, mate. Bye, bye, bye. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. 
Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.